Hello, this is uh, Professor Charles Spence, uh, Head of the Crossmodal Research Laboratory here at Oxford University and uh, currently in Oxford, um, unlike most of you, and here to share some thoughts about gastrophysics, uh, the psychology of herbs and spices. Um, and this is a topic I think that has long caught the attention of the historians uh, and the anthropologists. Uh, for a while at least, some thought of uh, sugar as a spice, hence uh, Sidney Mintz's book here. Um, we also have uh, Wolfgang Shrivelbush's Tastes of Paradise, A Social History of Spices, uh, a long history of interest then uh, from some disciplines, history, anthropology, but also from novelists and writers, uh, Italo Calvino under the Jaguar Sun, writing a lot about uh, Chile um, and uh, Gonzalez Clusi from 1989, The Five Senses. His chapter on taste is all about the, the fiery chili sauce that his father used to eat, uh, that he tries to, in some sense, recreate. But while the historians, the anthropologists, the novelists, and the writers have long been interested in uh, herbs and spices, uh, there's a sense, I think, in which the food scientists, the food psychologists, uh, have kind of ignored uh, uh, this aspect of our cuisine, of our food culture, uh, be it from the title of uh, Samin Nozrat's Salt, Fat, Acid and Heat, nothing about herbs and spices there, uh, through to um, Paul Breslin's sort of excellent kind of evolutionary perspective on food and human taste from Current Biology magazine from 2013 that again talks all about why we can uh, decode are sensitive to the tastes and flavours that we are, but makes pretty much no mention of herbs and spices, as if perhaps they are uh, unimportant. Um, and I myself, I guess, too, have also uh, neglected herbs and spices when looking back over um, kind of my research. Uh, here are the last three books from The Perfect Meal from 2014 with Bettina Picaris-Fisman, the more industry-focused multi-sensory flavor perception from 2016, again with Bettina, um, through to 2017's Gastrophysics, uh, all about what makes food taste the way it does, why do we like what we like, but really very little um, mention of herbs and uh, spices. So that said, uh, in the last couple of years, uh, my interest has kind of started to range out uh, and to ask some of the questions about our perception of and our response to herbs and spices that in previous years I've looked at in the context of basic tastes uh, and various flavors in food. Um, at the start one might think just of um, color. I think there's a lot of interest there in the distinctively different colors that are associated with and given by uh, various herbs and spices both currently but also in kind of a, a long tradition uh, in cooking back to medieval times and, and before of using herbs and spices to add some visual interest to a dish. Mapped onto current research showing that if I color the salsa redder, uh, you will probably rate it as tasting spicier, kind of cross-modal correspondence between uh, uh, taste and color through work in Taiwan showing that if I serve you some spicy tofu on a red plate, it will taste spicier to you than if I serve it on a plate of another color. 
there are some sort of multi-sensory interactions here in our experience of herbs and spices, or at least of one spice, uh, namely chili. And you uh, may have heard it already, maybe not, um, but we've also been working on, on, on the sound of spiciness. Uh, and this work with Janice Wang and Steve Keller, a sound designer, we worked in the laboratory and we worked in restaurants, serving people uh, dishes like the one you can see here, hopefully on the screen right now, a mildly spicy salad served to diners at um, uh, Etch restaurant in Nashville, Tennessee a few years ago. And those diners in the restaurant had to rate how tasty, how flavorful, how pleasant and uh, how spicy that dish was. Uh, and what we found is that when we played in the background we could make that dish taste significantly spicy you can see them on the left of the graph here than those who listen to silence who listen to white noise or sweet music instead uh, so clearly chili spice at least does have a sound we can study it in the lab and then play it back as a kind of version of sonic seasoning. For these reasons and more then, uh, I've become more and more interested in the world of spice, looking more into the, um, moving away from the straight psychology or gastrophysics of herbs and spices, bit more into the history, the anthropology of why is um, piquant and spicy food so delicious to us, into the question of how we can modify our perception of spiciness be it through music, be it through color, be it through both, be it through naming, be it through packaging. Um, all lots of interesting stuff there, but, but my sort of sense is that maybe, while most of the psychology and gastrophysics on herbs and spices has really just restricted itself to piquancy, to the burn of chili heat, and kind of neglected or ignored the other herbs and spices. And that might not matter, except for the fact that I think our perception of response to uh, and history around chilies is in many ways unique um, in terms of the effects they have upon us, in terms of uh, making us salivate. There aren't so many other herbs and spices that do that. In terms of making us sweat, again, there aren't so many herbs and spices that make us do that. Uh, in terms of the oral burn, maybe it's, it's pretty unique. Um, and so on. So maybe uh, we have to be careful about generalizing from what we find, what we learn about uh, chili um, may not necessarily uh, extend to uh, the other spices or herbs. Um, but thinking there about uh, herbs and spices beyond the chili, um, I guess we should start with a uh, definition, one of, uh, of many definitions that have been put out there. Um, this from the US Food and Drug Administration the FDA who defines spices as an aromatic vegetable substance in the whole broken or ground form, the significant function of which in food is seasoning rather than nutrition, and from which no portion of any volatile oil or other flavoring principle has been removed. Uh, and with that definition in mind, then, uh, oops, sorry, there are uh, many herbs and spices out there, at least a hundred different ones. Um, though only a relatively small number of them seem to be in common usage today. Uh, some like Silphium, uh, popular in Roman times, no longer around others that were unheard of uh, centuries ago. Uh, 
taking on a huge popularity, such as, for example, Chile. Um, so what I, the, sort of the, the historians suggest then is, is that, um, that the popularity of different herbs and spices has changed markedly uh, in recent history, last 800 years or so. Uh, and I think one question there must be, why has our relationship to our choice of herbs and spices changed? Can we explain uh, both what they're doing in our food uh, and why the particular combinations of the specific herbs and spices that we find are there in the proportions that they are? Uh, tricky questions. Um, but if we just look to see what kind of currently, well, reasonably currently, but good data I think is, is hard to come by on this score. Uh, this just the sales of fresh uh, rather than uh, dried uh, herbs and spices from Australia from 2003, uh, highlighting that by weight at least. And of course, weight doesn't necessarily equate to flavor impact. Uh, or expense. Garlic is coming in there sort of three times the amount used, bought in, in Australia. Uh, also chili, very popular, ginger, uh, basil, coriander, and so on. But others, the, the lemongrass, the mint, the oregano, the dill, uh, much less frequently used. And again, that one question of what determines uh, the relative proportions of these different herbs and spices uh, that we use. And particularly in our cuisine, uh, because many of those herbs and spices may be bought for uses other than in uh, cooking, and in recipes, and in the meals we eat. There's clearly a huge market for the herbal teas, things like chamomile, of which more than a million cups are drunk each and every day. One might think of the, of the more psychological use of herbs and spices to relax us at the end of the day to perk us up maybe by chewing that mint flavored chewing gum. Uh, but these sort of more medicinal and psychological uses, I think are now increasingly well documented, uh, what they do to us and the beneficial effects that herbs and spices can have. But those medicinal and psychological uses don't necessarily mean that they should be make our way into our food. Why not just have the herbs and spices separately to, to convey the effect that we want them to have, to make us alert, to make us relaxed. There's no need to integrate them into the food as such. And that's the question for me uh, today really, is uh, what are herbs and spices doing specifically in the foods uh, that we eat? You might just say, well, that's because they taste good. Uh, what, what other reason do you need? Um, but I think there is a, a, a sort of more fundamental question here in that herbs and spices are generally not nutritious, uh, with the exception of chili, providing vitamins A and C, nor do they serve to bulk our food out. So that's not the reason, with just about 2.25 to three grams of, of spice per kilogram of primary ingredients, according to Sherman and Hash. Nor do they act as sort of generalized flavor enhancers in the way that adding the mineral salt to our food does, but rather, at least initially, they're going to taste bad because they very often taste bitter, uh, irritating, pungent, burning. These are all kind of unpleasant sensations that are attached to the consumption of many of those, a number of those herbs and spices. So why then uh, uh, do we put them in our food if they taste bad and they don't provide nutrition, nor do they bulk the food? 
All that, of course, before we get to uh, all the sort of, was it a third of the population out there of the soapy cilantro haters, kind of the genetic differences in our responses to certain herbs and spices, of which cilantro may be the most pronounced, that make it taste really unpleasant uh, to many people. Again, why is it there in our food? Uh, the sort of response that newborns may give to herbs and spices may be kind of shown by uh, the baby we see at the bottom of the screen here, kind of disgust on the left, and the, uh, the baby on the right, uh, sucking, biting into a uh, lemon, and really not convinced about the experience. And again, lemon, um, not in my definition, but in some definitions, accounts as a uh, spice, lemon juice in particular. Uh, and that question, what are they doing there? What are herbs and spices doing in our cuisine, specifically, is one that goes back, of course, a very long way uh, from Pliny the Elder, once asking about the pepper that was very popular in the Roman era. Who was the first to try it with food? Who was so anxious to develop an appetite that hunger did not suffice? Pepper, he continues, is neither sweet nor beautiful, merely pungent. So again, what is it doing there? And why have the food scientists and the gastrophysicists uh, thought so little of it? Uh, as Harry Lawless put it in his paper, one of his papers from 1989, uh, pepper pungency is the forgotten flavour sense. The whole area of chemesthesis um, uh, not really given the same weight as our response to basic tastes or uh, aromas and flavours. Uh, Mrs. Beaton, too, was, uh, would take some convincing, I guess, back in 1861, writing her cookery book and household uh, guide. We can see down at the bottom here, writing about garlic, that the smell of this plant in general is considered offensive. And it's the most acrimonious, uh, odious in its taste. But the whole of the uh, aliacious uh, uh, tribe. In 1548, it was introduced, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but really, it's unpleasant. So what is it doing in our food? I guess the, the, part of the answer uh, about why herbs and spices are unpleasant to us uh, is that they contain uh, a variety of phytochemicals, secondary plant compounds that are there specifically to prevent, prevent predation. They are there specifically to taste bad, to give rise to irritation orally, to pungency, to the electric tingle of Sichuan peppercorns, the bitterness to pain of a um, high Scoville chili. All of these, one would think, undesirable sensations and yet incorporated into our food. And we were not born liking any of these sensations, uh, I, I would hazard a guess, and nor are we likely to have experienced them much either in utero or in early development given the, um, their teratogenic properties, um, at least when uh, concentrated. So again, how can we learn to like herbs and spices and then what governs which ones uh, we end up using and liking in our cuisine? Uh, and to answer that question, the why question, I think there are a couple of uh, sort of approaches. Um, one ultimate, one proximal. Um, there seems to be a nice story 
emerging or having emerged from uh, the work of Sherman and Billing and others around what they call evolutionary uh, or Darwinian gastronomy and their antimicrobial hypothesis uh, as an ultimate explanation of what they've been doing in our spices, in our foods for so long. Then of course we also need a proximal explanation for why we choose at any moment in time or over history to add them to our food. Is it because they taste good? And if so, how? Is it just to make them foods look good? And I think probably neither of these explanations as they've often been put forward really do a, a, a full job of explaining why herbs and spices are there. While the um, antimicrobial account, as we'll see in a moment, um, maybe does uh, explain at sort of evolutionary time what herbs and spices are doing. It fails to capture, I think, the nuances over as the centuries go by and certain herbs and spices rise in popularity or, or decline. And the proximal explanation, well, we use them in our food because they taste good, just doesn't hold true. Because um, initially, at least, uh, they don't taste uh, good. I want to take a look at these two explanations uh, in turn, uh, their strengths, what their data they can explain, uh, and what they uh, struggle uh, to get a handle uh, on. So according to uh, Sherman Billings and others' uh, antimicrobial hypothesis, the reason why we put herbs and spices uh, were added to our foods in the first place is that they help to kill the microbes and thus provide some degree of protection against various foodborne illnesses. Uh, hence, we don't add them for flavor necessarily or approximately, but uh, uh, to cleanse food of parasites and pathogens that we're unable to smell and to detect through our other senses, but which could give us a very severe bout uh, of uh, illness. And that claim that the reason why we add our herbs and spices is ultimately about um, antimicrobial protection makes a few clear predictions. On the one hand, that uh, uh, Meat-based dishes and recipes tend to be more susceptible to microbial affection than vegetable-based dishes, and hence spices should be more prevalent there in meat than vegetable-based dishes. And also that as temperature increase, increases, at least prior to contemporary refrigeration, uh, one would expect more spices to be present at higher temperature climates than the recipes therein because of the greater risk of microbial um, infection. So, uh, is it true that um, uh, uh, herbs and spices do play that role in terms of uh, killing bacteria? Here we have data from, um, collated by Billing and Sherman from a paper in 1998, listing out a number of the um, popular herbs and spices currently, and ranking them on the basis of the proportion of bacteria, food bacteria, that they were capable of inhibiting when uh, present. And we can see on the left, things like garlic, onion, allspice, and oregano, inhibiting uh, all of the bacteria they were tested against. Others, uh, thyme, cinnamon, tarragon, doing a pretty good job, over 75% of bacterial inhibition, down to, to, to parsley and um, uh, cardamom, pepper, more towards the right, with a pretty mediocre antimicrobial function. So clearly uh, one tenet of the antimicrobial hypothesis is correct. Yes, herbs and spices do in varying degrees uh, inhibit the growth and the propagation of bacteria in food. 
That might explain why they're added uh, to the meal while cooking. And similarly, uh, it might also help to explain when thinking about food preservation, that they would be added. Uh, and here from a paper from uh, Gattardi and colleagues from 2016, uh, they list out 99 different spices and summarize all the evidence for the antimicrobial um, function of the various phytochemicals uh, therein, all doing a good job and inhibiting each one different specific uh, bacteria. Uh, so, so far, uh, so good. Um, what about the other predictions? The predictions that there should be more spices in uh, meat-based and vegetable-based recipes. Uh, well, that holds up here from uh, Sherman and Hash data from cook traditional cookbooks from 36 different countries. Uh, that in total call to the 41 herbs and spices one can see hopefully on the on the x-axis of the graph here uh, ranked by the um, proportion of recipes requiring um, these herbs and spices again onion pepper garlic chili most frequently requested required for the recipe on the left but in pretty much all cases you can see the black bars for the meat-based recipes are higher than the uh, white bars next to them for the vegetable-based uh, recipes thus supporting that claim um, that indeed uh, meat-based recipes do seem to be more heavily spiced uh, than vegetable-based. One sort of question for me that when, when looking at this graph is uh, the most commonly used um, uh, herb and spice according to uh, Sherman is onion. Hence the question that started this session, are onions, or in their terminology, leeks, shallots, uh, spices, is lemon and lime juice also on this graph a spice or capers. To me and to many definitions I look at, these would not uh, merit the definition of spices and yet they're playing a big role in the data that Sherman uh, presents. And here in this graph we can just ignore those bars, those spices that we don't like the look of, but in some of the subsequent data it's a little bit harder uh, to do that. Uh, more data from Sherman and Flaxman this time uh, showing uh, again, the various spices along the x-axis, the percentage of bacteria in foods that are inhibited, um, and their use in meat and vegetable-based uh, dishes. Again, the onion, the garlic, the allspice, uh, inhibiting 100% of bacterial growth, um, and in most cases here, uh, the meat-based, higher number of spices than uh, the vegetable-based. What about the other prediction about temperature? That warmer climates should have cuisines whose recipes incorporate more uh, spices. Uh, one contrast here, uh, just from Norway, which has the lowest annual average temperature of any of the countries they studied, 2.8 degrees. We have a recipe for chicken um, with uh, slightly less than two herbs and spices on average for their um, uh, dishes contrasted with a Indian uh, chicken dish where the annual average temperature is 26.9 degrees, one of the highest recorded, and where the average number of spices for meat-based recipes comes in at nine. So a big difference in temperature, but also in use of spice consistent with Sherman's uh, account. Um, and that's something we can see again in a little more detail uh, when we take not just Norway versus India, but across the mean annual temperature 
of those 34 or 36 countries. Um, uh, and we see that the black dots, the black bars in the graphs here for meat-based recipes are higher in all three graphs, indicating a higher number of spices used, a higher total number of spices for meat-based recipes uh, used, and on the right, importantly, how the increase in the number of spices relative to vegetables uh, in meat versus vegetable-based dishes increases as the ambient temperature goes up. So this all looks well and good. Antimicrobial hypothesis is the ultimate explanation for herbs of spices in our food supported. But one should say um, that not all the data agrees. Uh, here from an independent research from Zhuan colleagues from PLOS One in 2013, they did a study, a computational gastronomy study uh, in China, looking at um, many thousands of recipes online, separating the country into distinct regions. You can see here, measuring the average temperature of those regions, and then looking at the number of spices per recipe in that region against the temperature of that region. Sherman and colleagues predicts there should be a nice linear relationship here. The data says no connection at all. Um, maybe it's just this is only one country, but Sherman also studied just China and do get their results. So maybe it's about the definition of spices and Zhu and colleagues simply don't tell us what definition they used in their study. So it's a little hard to say. So ultimately then, I think the, um, uh, the antimicrobial hypothesis is uh, good at one level. Uh, I worry about what definition of herbs and spices are used to support the thesis. Does it matter or not? Lemon juice, orange, uh, lime juice, capers, onions, should they be in or out? And how would the data change? That's not clear. One might worry about the robustness of this temperature, annual average temperature um, correlation with number of spices, given the null results of Zhu. One might also, when pushing the theory, say, um, wouldn't you expect that the antimicrobial account was all, everything, that allspice, the alliums, the onion, and the oregano, which were the most effective antimicrobial spices out there, shouldn't they be used more often, all the time in recipes? And we just get rid of the less effective ones. Why is it that pepper has been perhaps the most popular dried spice or of all spices for centuries, uh, lemon and lime juice too, if their antimicrobial powers are not so good as the other spices? Maybe it's something to do with synergistic effects that pepper allows the other spices to work more effectively. Um, who knows? It also explains maybe why some spices and herbs like parsley and, uh, uh, and coriander leaf uh, that we tend to add at the end of the meal and the end of the preparation of the, of the, of the meal, uh, these are the ones that lose their antimicrobial property with cooking, but not if you add them uh, at the end. Um, all well and good, but ultimately I think the, the antimicrobial account fails to explain really how many spices we add to our foods and which combination we add nor why that differs from one uh, country to uh, the next. It fails to explain, I think, really why the popularity of herbs and spices has changed so dramatically over the centuries. With cinnamon and cloves being much more popular in medieval times, pepper always 
popular garlic and chili going up, up, up in recent years. Um, antimicrobial account doesn't really say anything plausible about that, I, I, I think. Um, and at the same time, uh, the antimicrobial account, I think, uh, uh, doesn't really help to explain um, Uh, sort of the fla our, our flavor relation to herbs and spices, what they do in terms of taste and flavor of a dish. Um, okay. uh, maybe it's about masking. Maybe we add herbs and spices, not because they taste good, but because they allow us to mask undesirable tastes, be it off taints in food. That probably doesn't fly because off food would make poison us and learned taste aversion would kick in. But maybe for boar meat that would formerly have had uh, an andros androsterone taint for many people that was unpleasant. Perhaps herbs are used there to mask that. Not illness-inducing, but unpleasant taste. Um, and, and Sherman and sort of uh, and colleagues uh, sort of flounder a bit, I think, in this space about why we add herbs and spices. Um, on the one hand, they, they sort of note that pungent spices like garlic, ginger, anise, and chili are initially distasteful to most people, so we shouldn't add them. But at the same time, in the same year, in a different paper, they sort of say, well, maybe, you know, herbs and spices may have played a role, at least initially, when we first started adding them to our food, uh, because pungent plant materials were, were appealing. But cinnamon and basil, we just liked it. Or we liked them because of the uh, pleasurable psychological sensations, e.g. E the, the endorphin hit of uh, uh, chilies. So which way do you want it? They do taste good or they don't. I think they fundamentally don't, uh, and we need a different kind of explanation here, and that's probably where the psychology uh, uh, comes in. Of course, there are, there are, there are other suggestions out there uh, about herbs and spices and their role in cuisine, uh, a long history of using them to add colour to food, both in the medieval period and uh, in the current era, uh, perhaps explaining in part why saffron is you know, the, the, the most expensive uh, spice out there, and one that adds perhaps the, one of the most appealing uh, of colours to a food. One also finds a suggestion that maybe we add herbs and spices because they add complexity to a flavour experience. Here, Francois Chatier uh, writing, suggesting that cloves are used mainly to enhance the taste of desserts, while in most other parts of the world, they serve to render meat's flavor more complex. Sounds plausible. You add more stuff to a recipe, it should deliver a more complex taste experience. Um, but I think things don't quite work that way. Uh, the more spices you add to a curry don't necessarily give you a more complex tasting experience. If you can individuate what's been added to the curry, some would say you haven't made it very well. These flavors should merge into one taste experience that has low perceived complexity, but high um, uh, chemical complexity. So I think this whole area of complexity, it might be the answer, but it's not as easy as making a one-to-one -one mapping between physical complexity and perceived complexity. They just do not line up, and we don't know how to predict or explain perceived complexity in a dish. Uh, then again, maybe we added them initially just to relieve boredom. Um, the same food eaten again and again and again. And that was a suggestion of Martinez that maybe the early cultivation, at least of chili, would sort of help to enliven an otherwise extremely tedious 
maize-based diet of just corn, beans, and uh, what else? Well, add some chili, and it makes things a little bit more exciting at uh, least. So thinking about the, their role then in kind of repeated consumption, which is different from their role in complexity, their role in color, uh, and so on. Um, and the final account here maybe we have to have is one based on flavor pairing. The suggestion that the reason why we add the herbs and spices we do to the recipes that we do and add different spices to different dishes uh, is because um, certain herbs and spices will share important perceptible volatile uh, aromas with the food that they are added to and hence they will harmonize in some way and that's the claim again of Francois Chatier, uh, one of the early proponents of um, uh, a flavor pairing who argues that thymol, the volatile compound responsible for the most important aromatic characteristic of thyme, is also the principal sapid flavor molecule contained in lamb. And this explains the age-old use of thyme in lamb recipes. It's as simple as that. Same molecule that is sort of matched up. Well, is it? Um, uh, I'm not so sure. Um, and even if it is the case for Western recipes, the computational gastronomists would have shown that that's not necessarily the case for other parts of the world. And here in a study from Jane and colleagues from PLOS One, they analyzed thousands of Indian uh, recipes online, uh, looked at the flavor volatiles in the ingredients incorporated into those recipes, um, and found that in fact in India, and since then it's been found in Korea and other Asian countries, the flavors that are combined in a recipe tend not to share any flavor volatiles. So in the Western cuisine, we have pairing or incorporation of herbs and spices because they share volatiles. Uh, in India, Korea and elsewhere, um, choosing different herbs and spices because they do not share uh, volatiles. Um, sort of explains the data that's seen, doesn't explain why East and West might choose to combine ingredients in that different kind of way. Uh, I've no idea what's going on here, but I'm intrigued by work coming from elsewhere in psychology, published in Science, uh, this one from 2014 from um, Tal Hellman and colleagues, uh, who, who are making a role for agriculture in thinking, in cognition, uh, comparing northern and southern regions of China, it's since done it elsewhere, between rice and wheat growing agricultures uh, and showing that the kind of agriculture, wheat or rice, predicts the kind of thinking, uh, local or global, that you preferentially exhibit. And I just wonder, could there be some connection here between that information processing strategy driven by agriculture and its impact on uh, picking ingredients that share volatiles or not. It's a stretch, but um, uh, who knows. Um, ultimately, um, though, I think we need to go beyond the computational approach. We need to go beyond the chemical account of pairing and its role in predicting uh, flavor and recipes with herbs and spices. And that is because we have to come back to that fundamental question, why do we eat something that Earth tastes bad to us. Um, and here I think herbs and spices are interesting because 
They represent a vehicle for the delivery of aroma detached from substance, essentially. And our response to any aroma uh, is not given, unless it's a biologically relevant aroma like blood or something. But most of our responses to, take to, to, to flavors are learnt, learnt as a result of the foods and the tastes that those aromas are paired with. Um, and hence, why we think, in the West at least, that vanilla pods uh, taste sweet, when in fact the vanilla pods taste bitter, literally, but we associate vanilla aroma and cinnamon aroma with sweetness, and that is as a result of our prior experience of uh, food. That's not captured by the computational account. It's not captured by a chemical account of flavor pairing, but it is uh, at least studied and in some way understood by the psychologists who have been looking at confusability, perceptual similarity, in other words, of herbs and spices. I think it's here that the ultimate answer to, to which uh, spices we may combine, we combine perceptually similar ones, Perceptual similarity is determined by prior usage, not by chemical uh, uh, formulation. And you can see that playing out in, in various studies. It varies cross-culture, as hinted at by Blank and Matters uh, here. And it really argues strongly, I think, against the, the claim you find from the computational gastronomists, like Jane and colleagues who did the cross-cultural curry study, uh, engine food study, I should say, where they say molecular composition of food di dictates the sensation of flavor. And I would say, no, it does not. You need to have a dash of uh, psychology in there to really understand what's going on. Uh, so just to conclude then, um, I think herbs and spices are hugely interesting, but largely ignored by those like myself in the sort of food science uh, community. I think they throw up a really interesting challenge about why we like um, uh, to ingest in meals those substances that, at least initially, would taste bad, that don't provide nutrition, and so on and so forth. I suspect the answer to that is partly based on the uh, antimicrobial hypothesis as the ultimate explanation, but the proximate one why at a particular moment in time we add herbs and spices may be based on uh, perceived similarity uh, on various aspects of flavor, pairing, um, and that maybe here these herbs and spices are unique in that they're sort of free-floating aromas that can be attached to anything in a way that other aromas in food uh, are not. And so to, to, to ultimately answer the question of why we include the herbs and spices that we do in the proportions that we do in the countries uh, where and how we do, then I think we need explanations at multiple levels, both at the evolutionary level, the antimicrobial hypothesis, Computational gastronomy clearly has a part to play in, in, in picking different patterns of herb and spice use by country. But as well, I think we need sort of a historical analysis to pick up on those trends in recent centuries and the psychology and gastrophysics to understand what tastes similar to us, which combinations we like and why. Thank you.